You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. This morning, we're going to look at God's Word together. Exodus chapters 16 to 18 is our primary text. And to get us started, I want to read Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Listen carefully to God's word. They, the people of God, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day... When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Welcome to any of you who are new. If you uh, have not been with us on Sunday mornings, since the start of the year, we have been studying the book of Exodus. And I've been greatly encouraged by how many of you have come to me and said that you have found this series to be so very powerful and applicable and right on time in your life for whatever it is that you've been going through. God's Word is good always and always right on time. I was also greatly encouraged by the number of you who came to me after last week's message and said to me that immediately, without delay, you went home and watched the movie Signs. (laughs) So many of you reached out to me this week and told me that. Now, we have a bit of a divided house, however, on our evaluation of the movie. I had one gospel partner who said to me, what a terrible film. What a terrible film. And I had another couple who said to me that it was great, and I never knew, I never knew that a movie about crop circles and aliens could be compared to the parting of the Red Sea. (laughs) Well, there is a first time for everything. We'll leave the aliens aside for now. If you need a bit of a refresher, or if you're new with us in this story of Exodus, Exodus is a pilgrimage. It's a journey story. The journey of God's people from slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai and the journey of God himself who delivers his people and then comes to dwell among them. Last week, we looked at one of the most spectacular moments in Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. God liberates his people from Egypt and he leads them to a dead end. 
with their backs to the water, with a madman and his army approaching. There is no way of escape. That was intentional. God led his people to that particular place to show them that where there, when there is no way, he will make the way. To show his people that he is indeed the all-powerful, all-glorious God, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our trust, of our worship. God sent a great wind, and he drove the waters apart. He gelatinized the Red Sea, picture it, creating a path, the way of escape for his people, and the way of dethroning the wannabe god Pharaoh and destroying the evil of Egypt. As the Israelites make their way through that path, as soon as they get safely to the other side, those gelatinized walls, they return to their original state. God sends the waves to wash away Pharaoh and his army. They sink into oblivion. This great power of Egypt, it is no longer a cause for concern. God dealt decisively with Egypt that day. But as the people of Israel continue their journey, it's a journey story, remember, as they continue their journey, they will encounter other lesser worries. As the scene changes from the parting of the sea to the details in the desert, we are reminded that God has thought of everything, matters great and small. See, if you had been there that day when he parted the Red Sea, there would have been no way to miss the transcendence of God. How could you have seen that gelatinized sea and not walked away saying, God is indeed the most impressive, the most important one. He is the great and powerful Yahweh. There was no way to miss it. But one question remains. That question is, does this God who works miracles, does he care about the minutia of my life? Is he too big to care about things so small? In chapters 16 to 18, we are reminded that God has thought of and sees to everything every detail. He's not just the Lord of the miracles, he's the Lord of the details. Matters great and small. In these chapters, the Lord gives four gifts to his people. He gives the gift of nourishment, the gift of rest, the gift of protection from enemies, and the gift of organization within the community. Nourishment, rest, protection from enemies, and organization within the community. Let's look at these good gifts and what we can learn from them. First, God gives the gift of nourishment. This one we find in chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. God provides the gift of food, and later he'll provide the gift of water. As the Israelites continue this journey through the wilderness, through a desert land, eventually they run out of supplies. 
They've been traveling for about a month. They run out of supplies. They have no food. They have no water. What are they going to do in the middle of this desert? Where are they going to turn? They do what they have now formed a habit of doing. They complain. They grumble. Later, when they have to go without water for a while, their grumbling becomes quarreling. They're ready to start a riot. They're not quite so worked up at this point, but still they grumble. They grumble about Moses and Aaron. They say things like, we wish we never had left Egypt. Back in Egypt, our bodies were battered, but at least our bellies were full. We weren't hungry there. We had the meat pots. We had the bread. Here we have nothing. They begin to complain, to doubt. What they fail to see is that here again, God has them precisely where he wants them. God has led them to the wilderness, to the desert, to test them. God is up to something here. He rains down bread from heaven. This is the test. This bread will come down from heaven each day. And each day the people of Israel are to go out and gather one day's portion. Only one day's portion. That's the test. Will they restrain themselves in their consumption? Will they trust in God's daily provision? Or will they become greedy? Will they take more than a day's worth? Will they hoard it? Some of them do become hoarders. They fail the test and they suffer the consequences. This bread from heaven, this is no ordinary bread, you see. On the one hand, it shows up wherever they go. In the morning, it's like a dew that's forming on the earth. And no matter the season, no matter the terrain, wherever the people travel, this bread from heaven has formed on the ground each morning for them. Later in the chapter, it's called manna, which is a play on the Hebrew for, say what? What is it? See, the people had never seen bread like this before because it went with them wherever they went. But on the other hand, it wouldn't keep overnight. If you gathered more than a day's worth of manna, you quickly discovered, you hoarder, you quickly discovered that it was now rotten. It was riddled with worms. This was the test. Will the people restrain themselves in their consumption and rely on God's daily provision, his daily nourishment, his daily gift of food? The Bible is a book for foodies. Oh, yes. The Bible is a book for foodies. In the Gospels, Jesus is always eating with people. Always eating with people. He turns water into wine. That's my kind of guy. <laughs> he takes a few fish and he transform them, transforms them into a, a, an amount of food large enough to nourish a huge crowd. Jesus shares the Passover meal with his disciples. He transforms the memory of that meal. Now, this meal will remind us of his sacrifice, the lamb who was slain for our sins. One of the first things Jesus did after he conquered death is he ate with his disciples. And for all of us who believe in Jesus and follow him to the end, the book of Revelation tells us that one day we will experience the marriage supper of the lamb the greatest feast ever, the party that never ends. The Bible is full of food. Why? What is this all about? Why is it a book for foodies? Because food 
first and foremost is a gift. First and foremost, it's a gift. Food, rightly understood, connects us to the divine. Don't you see? God made you and me in such a way that we cannot live without eating. It's a wonderful reality to ponder. It tells us so much about ourselves. For us, eating has just become this, this thing we do without thought. It shouldn't be that way. Every time we sit down to eat, we are reminded of our lack of self-sufficiency. Something from outside of me must come into me if I am going to live. Food is a gift. We are creatures who need calories to survive. Without calories, you can't do math and science. Engineers, scientists, I'm talking to you. Without calories, you can't research and build arguments. Lawyers, I'm talking to you. Without calories, you can't make music. Musicians, that's you. Without calories, you can't chase your rambunctious children. Parents, you know who you are. Without calories, we can't do anything. We can't live. God wants us to see in the gift of food his daily provision for us. He wants us to see that he is the giver of food and all good gifts. Food is God's love made nutritious. God's love made delectable. He wants to nourish you. He wants to satisfy you. Receive his good gift. That's the first gift we see in this passage. There are three others. Secondly, God gives the gift of rest. There's one detail about this manna that I've omitted. We'll get to it now with the second gift. On the sixth day, when they, the people, prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So something odd happens here. We've already been told that the people are to go out and gather one day's worth of food, only one day's worth of that manna. But on the sixth day, they have a different command. On the sixth day, God tells them to gather a double portion, two days worth of manna. Sixth day manna will last overnight. It will not spoil. And later in the chapter, God tells us exactly why he does this. In verse 23, Moses said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. This is the introduction of the Sabbath day. The idea of the Sabbath... We see the idea of it in the creation narrative itself. God rests, ceases from activity on the seventh day, but this is the first time in the Bible that this idea of the Sabbath day is applied to God's people. God is training his people to work and to rest. They gather a double portion on the sixth day so that on the, so that on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, they can rest. In fact, he tells them, stay at home. Don't work. Don't gather. Simply enjoy. Enjoy life. Enjoy my good gifts to you. 
That's what the seventh day is all about. If you've ever come to church before thinking that God doesn't want to satisfy you, having some very negative view of God, maybe from your very negative view of Christians who are associated with God, then I'm glad you're here today. Because can't you see in these stories, God wants you to enjoy life. God has designed you and me in such a way that we require this wonderful rhythm. He's wired us in such a way that we need not just nourishment, not just food, but a rhythm of activity and inactivity, of work and rest, of labor and slumber. All work with no rest, that's called slavery. God doesn't want that for you. All rest with no work, that's called sloth. There's a better way than that, too. God has created rhythm. Work and then rest. Enjoy life. But as Americans, we have a hard time with that one, don't we? After all, we have a dream to chase. That wonderful American dream. So we've convinced ourselves that we don't really, that rule of rest, it doesn't really apply to us. We can't capture that dream. In six days, we need seven. Heck, we need eight. We have hurry sickness. John Mark Comer has a handy little book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in this book, he gives us 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. Let me read them to you, and let's see how many apply to you. Number one, irritability. You get frustrated or annoyed way too easily. Number two, and closely related to the first, hypersensitivity. Minor things quickly escalate to major emotional events. Number three, restlessness. You simply can't relax, can't slow down, can't sit still. Oh man, I can relate to that one. You see me walking around on the stage up here, I can't be still to save my life. Number four, workaholism. Your drugs of choice are accomplishment and accumulation. For you, not working is the real work. Number five, emotional numbness. You don't have the capacity to feel another person's pain. You just don't have time for it. Number six, out of order priorities. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent thing, not the most important thing. Your life is reactive, not proactive. Number seven, lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics. Eight hours of sleep, daily exercise, a healthy home-cooked meal. Number eight, escapist behaviors. You run away from the world by running to your favorite distraction, usually one of the socially acceptable addictions, overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching Netflix, scrolling social media. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. You're too tired to do what is actually life-giving for your soul. Silence, scripture, prayer, and praise. And number 10, isolation. You're so very busy, and yet you somehow feel disconnected. 
disconnected from others, disconnected from God. In his word, God has given us the antidote, the cure for hurry sickness. It's his gift of rest. Receive it. Stop trying to convince yourself that this rule of rest doesn't apply to you. Rest is an act of trust. When we rest, we are saying, God, I trust that this world, this organization or company, in my case, this church, I trust that it will be just fine without me in the driver's seat for a day. Rest is an act of trust. Receive this second good gift from this passage. We must continue. There are two others to get to. Third, God gives the gift of protection from enemies. Protection from enemies. This one comes in chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So let me help you get the scene here. As the Israelites continue on this pilgrimage, continue on this journey, one day they're attacked by the Amalekites. This was a nomadic tribe. Think of them as desert pirates. Probably they come after the Israelites, expecting them to be easy prey, lacking resources in the desert. So they attack. This is a moment that calls for calm leadership that looks to God. Calm leadership that looks to God. Where fear sees a tragedy, faith sees an opportunity for God to show his power. So Moses readies the men. He calls on a man named Joshua, introduced here for the first time in the story. He'll become a very important character later in the Bible. Joshua is going to lead the ground war. Moses is going to lead the air war. There will be two parts to this battle, but they'll be related. As Joshua gathers men and engages the Amalekites on the ground, Moses goes to the top, ascends to the top of a nearby hill with the staff of God. You should remember this. This was the staff that he held out over the sea when God parted the waters. With this same staff, Moses will stand on the hill and he'll hold it out. And as long as he does, God will again fight for his people. Though this time, God will fight through the people on the ground. His power will somehow surge through the Israelites on the ground. And so as long as Moses keeps the staff of God in the air... Israel will have the advantage on the battlefield. But the moment that the staff of God starts to go down, the people of Israel also will start to fail in the battle. For a while, all is well. But Moses is merely human. He can't hold the staff up forever. As the battle continues, we're not told for exactly how long, his body begins to wear out. His shoulders, his arms are burning. His body shaking from the strain of trying to hold the staff of God out. He knows what will happen if he lets the staff down. But he's merely human. The leader needs help. And so to his side come two men, Aaron and another man named Hur. 
They can't hold the staff for him, for the staff was given to Moses alone. But they can't hold Moses. These two men come to his side and they lift the arms of Moses so that he can hold the staff out and so that the people on the ground, the people of Israel, will be victorious. The team of three succeeds where the solo leader would have failed and all the people in the army with him. This little battle scene, it teaches us two very important things. First of all, it teaches us that Yahweh, the one true God, he's also an all-terrain God. See, the people had seen his power at the waters, but now they're in the desert. Is Yahweh's power limited to the water, or is he an all-terrain God? In other words, can he handle only certain circumstances that come my way, or can he overcome all of them? This battle demonstrates that wherever you go and whatever you face, Yahweh's power is sufficient. But there's a second thing this short battle scene teaches us. Every human leader eventually will run out of fuel. Eventually will run out of fuel, will not be able to go it alone, will need a strong company, a fellowship, a team, a community. By God's design, we are better together. And that leads us to the fourth and final gift in this passage. Jumping to chapter 18, God gives the gift of organization within the community. A bit of a longer passage I want us to read this time. Chapter 18, verses 13 to 18. Hang with me on this. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me. They come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now again, let me set the scene. We fast-forwarded a bit in the story here to chapter 18. Chapter 18 begins with a family reunion. Moses is back together with his family. Now, it's been a long while since we've heard about any of these individuals who are mentioned in chapter 18. You might have forgotten that Moses had a family. Way back at the beginning of the story, recall that when Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster, he fled to the land of Midian. And in the land of Midian, he started a family. And he served for many, many years there as a shepherd. Moses has a wife and two children. They have been separated for quite a while now. At some point, Moses sent them back to Midian, not keeping them on the journey. But now, in chapter 18, his father-in-law named Jethro brings the whole family back together. So it's a wonderful moment. It's a moment of celebration, a family reunion of hugs and kisses and laughter and storytelling. And in particular, Moses tells the story of all that God has done how God has rescued his people. And though Moses did much in the storytelling, 
Moses doesn't mention himself at all. He says nothing about his leadership. He points to God, the God who has been victorious. Moses shares the gospel with his family. He teaches the gospel in the context of his home, first and foremost. So it's a great moment, a moment of happiness. But on the other hand, it's a very stressful moment. Because in chapter 18, Moses is overworked. Ever been there? Moses is severely overworked. So God brings Jethro, his father-in-law, into the situation to bring organization to the community. Or we could say it like this, to bring the gift of delegation. The gift of delegation. God brings the right person to speak in the right way. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. He has a loving relationship with him. He has the right type of relationship to speak some truth into Moses' life to help him see something that he can't see for himself. He's not only the right person, he speaks in the right way. He doesn't usurp Moses' authority. He's not harsh with his words. He coaches without crushing. That's what a wise mentor does. Jethro sees something that Moses can't see, and he offers a solution. Here's what he sees. Every single day from sunup to sundown, a huge line of people forms. These are Disney World lines. All day long, the people are waiting, and they're waiting to see Moses. Moses has convinced himself that he's the only one that can help people. And all of the people have convinced themselves that they must see Moses. Jethro helps everyone see that they must all have the humility that is necessary for the delegation of labor to take place. Moses must come to see, I can't help everyone. It was good work that he was doing. Don't miss this. He was trying to help people settle matters, judicial matters. He was trying to help them understand God's will and God's ways. It was good work. But Jethro says to him, Moses, the good work you're doing, the way you're doing it is not good because you're making it all your work. And as long as you do that, you will wear yourself out and all of the people will wear themselves out standing in line all day to see no one but you. Moses must realize he can't help everyone. He shouldn't try to. And the people must understand Moses is not the only one who can help us. So Moses receives the good, wise counsel that comes from Jethro. He delegates. He goes out and he recruits God-fearing, trustworthy men to come alongside him. What does he do? He establishes an organizational chart. Levels of responsibility. Different tasks for different people. And now, more people are ministered to. Now you can see the application for us here. If you're in a position of leadership, whatever that position of leadership is, you must understand that failure to delegate means that you have convinced yourself, as Moses once did, that you're the only one who can do the job. That it won't get done properly, or it won't get done at all, unless you're the one who does it, and you're only going to wear yourself out that way. You're going to kill yourself that way. 
Now, what if you're not in a position of leadership, but you're part of some larger community, some organization, then you must see that failure to operate within the delegation, to operate within that organizational chart, that also arises from a sense of self-importance in you. You insist that you should be able to get directly and immediately to the person at the top. You see, no community, no community can function well without the pursuit of humility. The pursuit of humility from everyone involved in it. Now, taking a step back and looking at all of these gifts together, we must confess that compared to the parting of the Red Sea, the passage we studied last week, these four episodes, these four gifts, they seem rather unimportant, not nearly as impressive. We go from the parting of the sea to organizational charts, but that's the point. That's the point. Yahweh is not only the Lord of the miracles, He's the Lord of the details. He's not just the God on high, He's the God up close. He cares deeply for you. He has thought of and sees to everything, every detail of your life. You need food to survive. You need rest to survive. You need community to thrive, the strength and the wisdom of others. These are God's good gifts. Receive them. Go home today, maybe tonight, and eat a perfectly cooked steak. Or if you're a vegetarian, a perfectly cooked carrot. <laughs> Whatever. Take an entire day out of the classroom. Teachers, I know how hard you work. I'm talking to you. Take an entire day out of the office. Spend an entire day away from that device. We need rest. And then be there for each other. Be strong for that brother who is weak. Give wisdom to that sister who's, who's experiencing a challenge in life. By God's design, we are better together. So together, let's celebrate communion, that feast of forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and how very practical it is. We see in these chapters of Exodus how you have taken care of every single detail and we are so very grateful for that. Help us now to receive your good gifts. So many of us have tried to convince ourselves that maybe we don't need food. Maybe we don't need rest. Maybe we're more like robots. But we're not. We see in the way you've created us that for us to live, something from outside us must come into us, your nourishment regularly. We must cease from activity regularly. If not, we die. Help us to see these good gifts of yours and receive them, recognizing, God, that you are the giver of these and all good gifts. As we transition now to a time of communion,
another type of feast, a feast of forgiveness. We come before you, God, humbly confessing our sins. We have not received your gifts. We have not submitted to your commands. We have not loved you, God, with our whole hearts. Or loved our neighbors and our enemies the way you teach us to. Forgive us. Forgive us for the things we have done. Forgive us for the things we have left undone. Our thoughts, our words, and our actions that have fallen short. We confess all of these sins to you, God, and we take refuge in the promise of your word, that wonderful promise that when we confess like this, you forgive. Our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. And so your word pronounces that even when we don't feel righteous, we are righteous because of our union with Christ. come to Christ's table now, remembering the gospel and all that it means. In Jesus' name, amen. On your way into worship this morning, you should have received these communion elements. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, whether you are a gospel partner here at Faith Church or not, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. Normally, at Faith Church, we observe communion on the first Sunday of the month, which today is. But during the seasons of Lent, leading up to Easter, and Advent, leading up to Christmas, we celebrate communion every week as a way of keeping the gospel at the forefront of our thinking. And this year, we're using just a very short reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the historic summary of Reformed theology, what we believe here at Faith Church, to give us a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation for all that communion means. So let me read this short paragraph to you again, which comes from chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood. He called it the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church until the end of the world. For the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their future and further engagement in and to all the duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his body. Each week, we're taking out just one little piece of this to focus on. Today, we're focusing on the bit that says that the purpose of communion is for their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. God made us in such a way that our bodies need food to live. We need nourishment, but we also need spiritual nourishment. And when we gather as God's people like this around His Word for worship, for communion. 
He nourishes us here and now. When we celebrate communion together, we're remembering, yes, but we're not merely remembering. Something is happening here. You are receiving spiritual nourishment from Christ. So be nourished at his table. In God's word, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Be nourished by Christ today.